Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can find us beyond the FM dial, listen to us live in the moment, or check out uh, our 10 years of archives at RadioNorthland.org. Don't forget we're on TuneIn if you want to listen live there too. It's lots of different options. I'm Glenn Broggett along with my friend uh, down there deep in the heart of Texas. It's still not uh, uh, getting too hot yet. It's still, uh, you know, getting those early days of spring, so it's bearable for for my friend, the grizzle vet, Mike McCurdy. Uh, Mike, for this interview, uh, where are you? Are you in the mobile unit, or are you uh, in in uh, the in studio in house uh, uh, setup today? We are back in the mobile studio today, man, for the first time in since last summer. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a nice little you know sixty seventy right now. Well, not right now, but mm-hmm. at this time. So yeah, no, we're we're not we're not hitting hot temperatures. We're not freezing anymore. So we're about ready to roll right into the springtime for a week. And then summer hit. Yeah, we we hit our days. We hit our days of consecutive forty degree weather, and it's been wonderful. But yeah, kind of soupy, kind of slushy, and uh, our friendly neighborhood local uh, maintenance uh, crew is uh, they're kind of slow, kind of kind of mid, kind of uh, not really on the ball. So we had had a lot of ruts, and then the ruts lead to a bunch of slush. And I finally, I think they just said the uh, we're just going to do the holistic, let Mother Nature, you know, melt it away. And finally, some of it did. But it's a good sign. I don't get too grumpy about it because I know it's warmer weather, it's bearable, and we can get shaken on lots of good fun activities. In fact, as of this recording today, I'm basically going to chat with you and our guest and then hit the stop and then get out and get into my car and go to Fargo and uh, go see Elton John. So I'm moving, I'm shaking, and I'm enjoying, and I'm getting uh, rid of the last bit of ice that froze me down here these last few months months of winter. Look at you going to see Elton again. What is this, third, fourth time for you? No, it's like Elton Show 9. Elton Show 9. Okay, I've never seen them before. Mm-hmm. I do have I do have tickets to see Debbie Gibson though. So, <laughs> it's know, the same thing, right? That. They both play piano. I'm excited. You're gonna get up. You're gonna look and just try to stare at her and get lost in her eyes. There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, look at that. That's the varying degrees of taste. You never know. And now you got Fogarty tickets too. So I mean, you you kind of bounce around. Yes, the I do. I, well. do. I do. have Fogarty. Yeah, I'm gonna go see him at a. I'm cast- everywhere. I'm going to go see him at a casino nearby outdoors for like 50 bucks this summer. So I'm, I'm okay with that. I've got a lot of shows uh, lined up here. And uh, yeah, like I said, I always it, it, it's a good sign, both uh, with the COVID things starting to kind of trickle away a little bit. It's always going to be uh, somewhat around in some way, shape or form. But, uh, you know, the shows are opening up. I'm doing more, doing more traveling. Uh, I mean, I've got a San Francisco trip coming up in June. going to be heading out to Seattle in October. Going to get out and live a little. And that's, that's, that's the thing, man. But you were gone last week michael and you missed a really good uh interview it was a quite quite the chat i had with karen mcdaniel and thunderblood charlie norris of course karen uh, was on to chat about uh the book about uh, she put together along with johnny cosper about the life of her husband wahoo mcdaniel simply titled wahoo and charlie norris of course um a native uh, pro wrestling star. He wrestled uh, with WCW for a while, but of course got his start down with Eddie Sharkey and Pro Wrestling America. It was a good conversation, and I think those two really quite hit it off, and uh, I think uh, there might be a friendship brewing there. So, Mike, thank you for giving up the uh, co-host chair and uh, being on assignment last week. So we had a pretty good but a bit of fun there with those uh, two, and uh, hopefully you got a chance to uh, soon listen to it and, and, and find out just how fun it was. I have not had a chance to listen to it yet because I have to wait for it to appear in the archives because I work during uh, on Sundays when our show airs. So um, I don't working have a chance at pre- to take a listen at pre- to it. At when it hits the archives, you know, I'll be sure to you know take a listen. And I do still need to read the Wahoo book. But, 
Mm-hmm. You know, Glenn, before we get started, though, I mean, at the time of this recording, I you know, want to mention, I'd like to offer, you know, my condolences and all that to family and friends of, you know, Scott Hall. We lost him just a few days prior to this interview. Um, you and I have already talked. We're going to put together a little Scott Hall tribute show because, obviously, you know, Minnesota ties AWA, you know, oh, Kurt Hennig, AWA Tag Team Champions. But, you know, this is one of those that's kind of like beautiful Bobby. This is one of those that it kind of hit you personally because everybody loved Razor Ramon. And while he had his demons, while he had his issues, he had a lot of friends and a lot of people really liked him. And it was like beautiful Bobby. Nobody really says anything bad about him. Mm-hmm. And everybody enjoyed working with him. And it was just really sad to, you know, to hear of his passing just, uh, you know, a few days ago. Yeah, yeah, that's very unfortunate. What I, I, you know, it was awful and stuff. But what I thought was a little bit out of, uh, you know, people kind of jumped the gun on, on putting up the uh, the in memoriams. I know that they were their hearts were in the right place, but that was the one takeaway I got to, from it was like that was negative. Was like, okay, guys, he's still fighting, he's still alive. Technically, he's heading towards that spot, heading towards that finish. But you don't have to uh, like uh, admit the obvious spoilers. I know people can get ahead of themselves, but that was kind of like, oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. But anyway, we lost Scott Hall. Also lost Mike Shields, a guy behind the scenes, uh, uh, television production, uh, both with uh, Jerry Jarrett down in Memphis. And of course, he went to the AWA and worked the last few years uh, with, with Vern and company. Uh, very much a behind the scenes uh, contributor and uh, his work uh, definitely needs to be acknowledged. Great guy too to chat with on Facebook from time to time. But always regret not lining him up for an interview on here. But uh, yeah, rest in peace, Mike Shields, uh, as we uh, go into chatting today. And what we have one more, J.J. McGuire as well. Well, we we lost him too. Yeah, I was kind of sad to hear him, man. I went back and listened to our interview with him. You know, he was a fun guy and he had great stories. You know, and if our listeners, you know, haven't heard this interview, go back in the archives. You can find that at RadioNorthland.org or on our SoundCloud page. And I also recommend buying the book. You know, My Life in Heaven Town. There are such great stories, and it's not just wrestling. He had stories about Gene Simmons from Kiss. He had stories about Elvis. He had so many great stories mm-hmm. to tell. I mean, he was he was a fun guy, and I was really sad to hear it when he passed. Yeah, I really enjoyed his story about Jackie Gleason and, and visiting him down in Florida and f- looking and, and finding that Jackie had a, a, a kind of a fascination with UFOs. Never knew that. I uh, When I was talking with Karen, I tried to propose the idea that they should get together with a bunch of her fellow wives, ex-wives, and put out a book called The Wives of Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. And, you know, if anyone ever put that together, I'd definitely put the, our guest on the short list uh, to, to write such a, and put together a project because I've loved some of the great stuff he's put out, both uh, in book form and, and column for him he's he's a definitely a great writer and he's got one hell of a podcast oh definitely man i I love the podcast and like you said many great books including the one that just came out or is coming out excuse me yeah i apologize cart before the horse brother cart before the horse no sorry 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 blood and fire the unbelievable true story of the real life original sheik an amazing book another one of his books the pro wrestling faq one of my biggest resource materials. I have two copies of the book. One, right. it's in my library for other people to peruse. And my copy, which is marked and highlighted and dog-eared and beat up because I use it all the time. So uh, it's a pleasure to have him on as a guest this week to talk about his upcoming book on the original sheet, Ed Farhat, as well as, you know, we'll talk a little bit about his, you know, tenure with WWE Magazine, tenure, his writing with Burroughs Illustrated, Inside the Ropes Magazine, and brilliant magazine from the uk 
you know, and as well as uh, his new podcast on the Arcadian Vanguard Network. Love the podcast. Uh, required listening for you and I both. Obviously, we've added it to our weekly rotation. Mm-hmm. But our guest today on Wrestling Memories is none other than Brian Solomon. Brian, welcome to the show. Wow. Thank you, guys. Wow, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me on, and, and thanks for checking out my books and my podcast. I'm, I'm flattered. I'm, I'm honored that, um, that you guys seem to be enjoying it so much. It's a great book, and, you know, and um, as a lot of people have, uh, you know, are going to find out that there's not a lot out there about the original sheet because the man was very private and kept to his gimmick. You know, so there's not a lot about his personal life. That's what I found fascinating about it. But, you know, before we talk about the book and kind of the, the process right on that, give our listeners a little background on, um, on in your career, Brian. As I said, you know, you were with WWE Magazine Pro Wrestling Illustrated, but, you know, let's give a little kind of background on you and kind of how you got involved in, you know, basically the, the wrestling business as a writer. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can, I, I can talk about, you know, I, I do other things in my career, but with pertains to the wrestling stuff, you know, it really is kind of an interesting story because I, I grew up um, as a fan and I, and I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. So really I kind of started out writing about it even as a kid, you know, when I was in college, I was writing for the college newspaper and I had to sort of persuade them <laughs> to put a pro wrestling column in the sports section, which wasn't easy to do, but so I'm doing that. I'm covering, you know, local indie shows in Brooklyn, which is where I live, in the neighborhood paper. It's just as a volunteer, taking my own photos, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I had it in my head because I'm 19, 20 years old, and I'm a little naive. I'm going, well, I'm going to start sending my clippings out to all these wrestling magazines, right, which there were a lot more back then, and, you know, things like that, and, and let them know that, hey, you know, I want to come work for you. Little did I know, right, I mean, to make a living doing that, you know, here I thought in my head, like, I'm going to be, oh, like I'm writing for Sports Illustrated or something, you know, but I got nowhere with it, uh, no surprise at that time, so I kind of gave up, and I was doing other kinds of writing, and about three years later, you know, I'm in my mid-20s or whatever it is, and um, really, it's as simple as seeing um, a help-wanted ad in the New York Times classified section, back when there was such a thing, again, and WWE or WWF then was looking for a copy editor, which is really like a glorified proofreader. And even though my experience was writing, it wasn't really copy editing. I kind of knew how they did their job. So I got my foot in the door there that way. That was 2000. And, um, you know, it was like a dream job. I never even expected I would get it. I just went on the interviews just for the hell of it, just to see what would happen, you know, and Next thing I know, I'm a, I'm a copy editor, and then after about a year, they made me a writer because they were just like, hey, this guy actually knows his stuff, you know, and seems like he could write. We're kind of wasting him just as a proofreader. So I did that and worked my way up into editorial positions. I mean, there were periods there where I was literally running the whole magazine, running the department, um, you know, and that kind of launched me into what I've done um, in this industry because after, you know, I was there for seven years. I uh, worked on WWE Magazine and Raw, and I launched SmackDown Magazine. I'm the one and only editor of SmackDown Magazine. Um, then after I left there is when I kind of just started doing independent stuff, you know, uh, which was pretty much on the side, like Pro Wrestling Illustrated and things like that. I've been contributing for them since 2007, but in the past couple of years, honestly, since the pandemic and the lockdown and everything, 
I've been focusing more and more on that stuff more than I ever had before. Um, you know, I'm, I'm now a full-time contributor to Pro Wrestling Illustrated and Inside the Ropes. I'm in every issue. You know, I've got this podcast going, which as, as anyone who does podcasts will know, it can be time-consuming, especially I put it out on a weekly basis. And of course, the book, you know, which is my third book, uh, the Sheik book, Blood and Fire. It's my, it's my fourth book overall. It's my third book on pro wrestling. So I've really, you know, and, I, and I've got more things in the works down the pike. So wrestling has taken up so much of my, of my working time now, more than it has probably since the days when I worked for WWE. Now you said this is your uh, your third wrestling book. Uh, the previous two would be WWE Legends and the Pro Wrestling FAQ, correct? That's right. Yeah, WWE Legends I wrote while I was working for WWE. That um, was a project that I pitched. Um, it was originally supposed to be a trading card set. Where I said, hey, you know, especially back then, this is like 20 years ago, you really weren't doing anything historical, like at all. I mean, even the Hall of Fame was in mothballs. If you guys remember, there were years where they just mm -hmm. forgot about the Hall of Fame, right? So I said, hey, mm -hmm. you know, we should do something to recognize these old stars. There's a whole market here. There's a nostalgia market. There's people that don't even watch current wrestling anymore that you could have as your customers if you're doing this vintage old school stuff. And I had this idea to put the spotlight on the stars of the territorial era of the WWF, like pre-WrestleMania, pre-Hulk Hogan, the people that you don't hear as much about because, I mean, honestly, that's the period where Vince wasn't running the company, right? So it's always been, it seems like, less important, right? So I wanted to put the spotlight on that, and it sort of morphed from a trading card set into a book, and it was put out officially through WWE. I can't explain to this day how it got under the radar all the way and actually published because every step of the way I kept waiting for somebody to kill it in the company for somebody to be like, why are we doing this book? You know, and it never happened. So I, I did that book. Um, I actually started it in 2003, didn't come out till 2006. Um, and pro wrestling FAQ was an independent book that I put out, um, years later, actually it, it was, it came out in 2015, but, it was part of a series of, uh, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, uh, wrestling for dummies and that kind of thing, that, that old series that used to exist where it's like everything you ever want to know about whatever pop culture topic. So there's like Beatles FAQ, Star Trek FAQ, you know, whatever. And so I did the pro wrestling FAQ, um, which I had a lot of fun doing. But what I found was that I think when it comes to wrestling books, this I learned the hard way, I think the ones that do the best and really sell the best are the ones that are personality driven rather than just as a reference book. And even though I'm proud of pro wrestling FAQ, it's not personality driven. So I'm thinking like, okay, for my next wrestling book, I'm going, I, I would love to try to do a biography, but who the heck would it be about? Because there's been so many wrestling biographies. So I'm trying to, you know, in the process of research, thinking about who's somebody that really warrants a biography, right? That's never had one. And I couldn't think of anyone at a higher level, especially from his era, who had never been, you know, written about in book form than the Sheik. So I said, well, this is, this is the one I've got to do because I'd already been fascinated by him. And I'm thinking, I got to fix this. Nobody knows a lot about his life and I'm going to take this on. 
Now, and as I said, that book uh, will be releasing soon, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. Um, now, in your introduction of the book, you kind of explained it. One of the reasons why there's not a lot out there about the Sheik and people don't know a lot about his life story is, one, he protected his gimmick. As I said, you know, I mean, he was, he was the Sheik. He was always the Sheik. But another part of the problem is his family did as well. And you talk about in an introduction that when he went to family, they didn't want to participate in the book because of his legacy and not wanting to reveal the, uh, you know, just kind of the inner workings of the sheep. So when you first started working on this and you were contacting them, what was that like? Well, you know, I, I had to respect their wishes, obviously, you know, and the thing about it was the family had been talking for many years, even going back to when the sheep was still alive. But even in more recent years when uh, his wife Joyce was still alive and then his sons who also recently passed away. But there was always talk of, you know, the family's going to do a book. And, you know, it's been 20 years now and that book has not happened. So I think people were kind of giving them a chance and stepping back and saying, you know, we don't want to step on this potential project, but it never quite happened for whatever reason. And, you know, I would have loved to have worked on it with them. But it's a combination of things, you know, there, there's uh, the secrecy, right? And it's wanting to control it, which is always a problem because th this book was my project. I mean, I pitched it, I, I visualized it, I created it, I'm writing it, I'm being paid to write it, right? So it's my book. <laughs> so, you know, like any other biography. Um, and I think uh, another issue obviously was money because, you know, unlike a movie where you're dealing with millions of dollars and you've got this huge budget and you can get family members on board and get like an authorized version if you want to do that you know books don't really work that way you know you start throwing money around and paying all these people and before you know it the the book's losing money you know i'm <laughs> not making a fortune off this i'm getting paid probably what i'd make in about a month or two as a high school teacher which, which was my day job you know so i can't be paying huge sums of money for interviews and things like that it's just not practical so it became a deal breaker even though I had I had fine relations with Eddie Jr., who's, who's Sheik's son at the time, and we were talking and texting, and you know he was he was uh, open to the project. You know he we had an initial conversation where the first thing he said was just like, "Well, I mean, without me, how are you going to write this book?" And I said, "Well, it's going to be a lot harder, but but I could still do it." I said, "There's research, you know. I'm a I'm a biographer. I've worked as a journalist. You know, I've written." If I decided to write a, you know, a biography of Richard Nixon, right, I don't need to have his family working with me to write the biography. I could still write it. I said, to, and I said, point by, I said, I'm going to write this book either way, but I'd love to work with you because I think it could be a lot better. And I think he liked that. And even, you know, when the money issue became a stumbling block where I said, look, I'm going mean, to be very blunt with you. My publisher's policy is not to pay. And I certainly can't do it out of my pocket. I'm you know, what you're asking for is like three or four times what I'm getting paid. So I said, you know, I can't. And, and I think even at that point, they were mulling it over. They really were. He even said to me that he said at one point, I want you to know that, you know, there have been a lot of attempts like this. And you're the first person that we've even considered helping, you know, and I was I was kind of patiently waiting. But unfortunately, tragedy struck the family, as a lot of people probably know. Because Tommy, who was Eddie's younger brother, the Sheik's younger son, um, he, he died of cancer, you know, and that was devastating 
to Eddie. That was, this was during the process of our talks. And so he kind of backed away and he, he actually told me, he said, look, I, I can't really think about this right now. You know, I, I need to sort of have some space and time to process this loss. And then unfortunately, he also passed within a few months. He, he wound up, uh, he was immunocompromised. Um, I think he was also a cancer survivor himself and he caught COVID and he died. And so that kind of put the, the finishing uh, touches on any hopes of really having that kind of collaboration. You know, it's unfortunate because, you know, I want to make that clear. There was not an adversarial relationship with the family. We were in talks. It was very possible that it was going to happen. And then other things kind of intervened. But I also couldn't wait forever. You know, I had deadlines. I had to produce this book. Time. And so I think, you know, I hope that the remaining family members, and I'm, I'm sure I won't be their favorite person in the world, but I would hope that they would keep an open mind and take a look at the book. Because really all I wanted to do was to preserve the Sheik's legacy and and talk about how great he was while also being honest because he was a human being. I'm not out to slander and bury people. I'm just out to tell a truthful, honest story about a very important person in wrestling history who deserves to have his story told. Now, that's one thing you mentioned in the beginning of the book, and this is what intrigued me and you know, as I was reading it, is you come right out and say that in this book, you know, you'll let people know what you don't know and what you know and how you know what you know. So there are parts in the book that, you know, you, you come out, you're very open and honest about it, you know, and you explain about the family. And that was part of the, the book that I enjoyed the most is you were like very open, very honest with the readers, explaining kind of just the formation of the book and how it got put together and how you were going to write it. So going into it, you know, that's what fascinated me the most was just kind of the honesty of, Hey, this is what I've got. This is what you're going to read. You know, and it, for me, it kind of made it more of an interesting story than just the standard, okay, I got the chance to talk to him, I got the chance to talk to the wife, the kids, da 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 da, da and here's his life story. I think it kind right. of gave it a little interesting twist. Yeah, I kind of discovered that very early in the, in the process that I would have to take an approach like that, what you're describing, partly because there was so much mystery about his life and so many times when I honestly couldn't be sure, to tell you the truth, I, I did the very best job I could and I'm not going to just pretend these are facts that I know 100%. You know, in some cases, I could, I could claim that when I felt confident enough. But, you know, I, I ran into these issues where I was uncovering things that I don't think anyone else actually even knew about, even his own probably surviving family. And some of these things were contradicting um, accepted truths about his life of whatever actually is known. And I started getting really nervous thinking like, what do I do here? You know, I, I mean, if I, if I say something's true and it turns out I was wrong about this, it, it looks very bad. Obviously anyone who's writing a biography knows that. So one of the people I talked to actually was Keith Elliott Greenberg, who I've known going back to the WWE days. And he's written, in my opinion, some of the best wrestling biographies that have ever been done. Uh, he did the Blassie one. He did the, the first Ric Flair book. Um, that Mark Madden claims that he wrote. He did um, the superstar Billy Graham biography. And, um, you know, so I went to him and I said, well, what do you think about this? And, and we were kind of bouncing it back and forth. And that's where I came up with that idea of, look, I'm, I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to be honest with the reader. I'm not going to pretend that I'm omniscient here. I'm going to, I'm going to be more transparent and conversational than most biographies 
would be, and I'm going to, I'm going to directly address the reader and say, look, you know what? Um, this is one version of what may have happened. Here's another version of what may have happened. You know, I don't know which one is true, but I'm just telling you that these are the stories. This is what, you know, I think is probably true. I, I did kind of stuff like that for a couple of things. Like one thing even early on in the process that blew me away was, you know, there were always these rumors about sheep, uh, similar to the stuff you'd hear about George the Animal Steel of like, okay, you know, he was actually a, a professor or <laughs> he went to the University of Michigan and he was a star football player and he did all these things. And what I discovered was that he never even went to high school. And so when I first saw these things, I'm going, you know, am I wrong here? Is this what I think it is? I'm making all these phone calls to colleges and schools and things. And, and I even got his military record where it states it right there. And I'm going, oh, my God, like, do, do I dare put this in the book? Because I've never seen this anywhere else. And so there were things like that where I had to be very clear where I got the information and how certain am I that it's true, um, things like that where, like you said, it just necessitated me to be very honest and very straightforward in the way I wrote it. Well, like I said, that, that was the kind of the concept that, you know, I think I really enjoyed the most to hear this story because, you know, you mentioned, like, you know, the Rick Flair book, Keith, and Keith Elliott Greenberg has been a guest on our show, and uh, he did that amazing book about, you know, Too Sweet Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution. And I'm actually going to meet uh, Keith in a couple weeks. He's going to be here in Texas for a... Uh, for a show that I'll be working at uh, WrestleMania weekend. So I'm looking forward to that as well. But a lot of times, even when the guys are writing their books, you know, they embellish the stories. I mean, Ric Flair is known for, you know, he, he tells a few stories that, you know, you obviously know aren't true, but to him they are. And of course, you know, in wrestling, you tell that story so many times, they truly start to believe that that is the truth. They, they just tell it so many times it becomes the reality of, uh, you know, kind of their life. I've run into that when I'm writing articles and doing pieces for different things that they'll tell me something and I'll be like, no, that's not. But to them it was, it is true. And all that. so the fact that you went through and did all the research to find out, you know, okay, here's this part of it. Here's this part of it. You know, this isn't, may not be true, but when you're putting the book together, like you say, it's not a standard book, you know, what were some of the obstacles that you came up with, you know, like to decide, you know, okay, I'm going to include this story. I'm not going to include this. Cause like you said, you can't prove some things are true and you know, it was harder to research. If, you know, if there were things that I, I believe it or not, I actually did have to leave things out. There's just, in some cases, it's just, there's not enough room and I had to be selective. There's so many great stories that people were telling me. The other thing is too, and I want to be clear about this. Yes. Especially in the later parts of the book, there are some negative things about him and, and, you know, bad decisions that he made, personal demons that he had. And my, my rules on these things was to include it if it's essential to the story, if it's essential to telling the story. You know, big time wrestling in Detroit went under. Uh, it didn't just go under because of bad booking or bad business decisions. There were other things going on in Sheik's life. And if I leave it out, I'm not telling the story. However, that said... I'm not going to get into sordid things, things that are defaming and things that are sensational and salacious and that kind of thing. I just feel like it's in bad taste. I'm not out to do a character assassination on somebody. You know, I'm not out to like to, to, to bury somebody. So there were things I would come across and go, you know what? 
that's not going in there. I just can't see any constructive use of putting this in the book. It's just, it, it's unnecessary. So there were things like that. But I also want to make it clear because, you know, like, like we were talking about Keith's books and other biographies. And one of the things with wrestling biographies, which I think sometimes readers get a little wrestling fans and things, maybe they get certain preconceived notions that I just want to be clear on here is that you know, most wrestling biographies, most have been autobiographies, meaning it's written by the actual subject or with the help of a ghostwriter or even just telling their story to a ghostwriter, right? Now, that's very, very different from an independent biography, right? And so there aren't as many of those in wrestling where it's an independent writer who's not biased by the subject, who's not biased by their family, who's trying to tell the straight story. Usually the person's passed away when that happens. Like we recently had the Buddy Rogers book um, by Tim Hornbaker. There's the Andre the Giant book, you know, but, but typically even those had some involvement from the family. But if you look at biographies in general, right, beyond wrestling books, you'll see that, you know, the, the biographies that are taken that, that are really in another category are the ones that are purely independent, that are researched independently by a writer, you know, in, in a journalistic way, whose the purpose of the book is not, it's not a PR piece for the wrestler in those cases. Nothing against the other wrestler biographies. In those cases, it really is like, like a nonfiction work that's trying to tell a historical story. It's a piece of history. So, so this book, I like to think, is in that category of biographies. You know, it, it's, um, it, it's not a project that came about as a result of the subject of the book, a wrestler saying, hey, I want to tell my life story. That's well and good, but that's a very different kind of book. And I think people need to understand that because sometimes people go, well, how could you write this book without the Sheik or without the Sheik's family or, you know, without like, what kind of a book is this? But, you know, if you go to the biography section in a library or in a bookstore, you'll see that's 90% of biography. So I just want to be clear on that preemptively to people who go like, well, how come, how come his family isn't involved with this? Well, that's why. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's, you know, if you go to the biography section, there are some books that come out about like, you know, Lucille Ball and, uh, other, you know, famous, obviously they're past. So, you know, they're not, they're not talking to, uh, the star themselves. Yeah. All right, I'm going to pass the mic over to Glenn for, uh, the next round of questions. Okay. Yeah. We, yeah this is a great topic that you guys, uh, kind of went, splintered off into, uh, speaking of like bios that, that need to be written. I don't know if anybody's going to step up. I mean, Tim Hornbaker, maybe yourself. I've been waiting for years now for Jim Z, the Jim Barnett story. <laughs> yes. Uh, that, <laughs> So, so it's funny you mentioned him. He's one that, you know, is so fascinating. Also, Tutsmont is another one yep. for me, where it's like this, this incredible, bizarre life of this, like, old-school kind of carny wrestling promoter. D very different kind of guy from Jim Barnett. But also, the, but the two of them, like, these behind-the-scenes, Jack Pfeffer is another one. These yep. behind-the-scenes, really unique, colorful individuals that within the wrestling business were legends even if fans didn't really know too much about them, I would love to see books on those people. There, you know, there's a couple of things, especially with something like Barnett. The, the problem too with books like this is finding a publisher, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like you're not going to have trouble if you want to write an Andre the giant biography, because he's one of the most famous people, not even just wrestlers, just people ever. Right. So, <laughs> so that opens doors. 
And with the Sheik, it was it was similar. The Sheik has a history in Canada. ECW Press is a Canadian publisher, and there was appeal there, and, and the fact that he was such a big name in the business. But but when that's not the case, it can be sometimes difficult. Like my understanding, and Tim, you know, if I'm wrong about this, Tim, you can definitely smack me down, Tim Hornbaker. But you know, something like Buddy Rogers, I think he he had to go the more independent route. It, because that's not something maybe that ECW Press is going to jump on the way it had with some of his previous books that he did through them. So it can be tough and sometimes discouraging. And that's, I think, why you don't see some of those books. I have actually tried to pitch a Tootsmont book. Tootsmont, who, for listeners that may not know, he was, he was a shooter back in the 20s. He was a legit wrestler. He became part of the Gold Dust Trio in the 30s with Ed Strangler Lewis and he was this promotional mastermind, right? He kind of helped invent the modern format of pro wrestling, of working and things. And then he later went on to help co-found Capital Wrestling and the Worldwide Wrestling Federation with Vince McMahon Sr. So he's this very important person in wrestling history. But, um, you know, again, it's like, a, it's like a faded name. It's not a name. You're, you're not going to move a lot of books. That's the thing. And that's yeah. what publishers care about. So a lot of times those kind of books are self-published. Um, so if I were to do that, a book like that, which I wouldn't rule out, you know, I, I would have to know that I would really have to have to go that route. And the other problem, too, is for some of those guys, I mean, like Barnett, especially um, even in the Barnett is heavily involved in the Sheik book. Uh, he's a major character in that biography, Blood and Fire, his his connections with Sheik and their kind of. Um, you know, they were allies, they were adversaries, they were, they were, he was very important in Sheik's life. And you also see that he can be a very controversial figure too. So if you're going to take on a book like that, you have to be willing to take on controversy. Like, I think that would be even far more controversial than the, um, than doing the Sheik story. For, for example, this is another thing that I uncovered, and I know a lot of people were aware of this, but I was not. Um, that one of the reasons that Barnett sold the Detroit territory to the Sheik and le- uh, excuse me, left the country and went to Australia to start promoting was that he was caught up in a sex scandal. That's in the book. He was caught up in a sex scandal involving the University of Kentucky football team, which was at the time major headlines and, you know, where they were kind of like uh, inviting these football players, these college guys to these orgies and things. I mean, it got pretty wild and there were Hollywood stars involved in it, like rock Hudson and things like that at the time who Barnett was friends with. And it became this, this thing where he just said, I have to go to the other side of the planet and get away from this. (laughs) And that's not talked about a lot. It's usually just like, Oh, he got pushed out. Oh, he wanted to go to Australia because there was no wrestling in Australia and it was, you know, open territory. That's all well and good. But there were other reasons. And when I came across that, I was like, whoa, 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 hold the phone. <laughs> and I looked deeply into it, and it's 100% fact. I mean, like, I, I, saw, I saw it with my own eyes, the articles and things at the time that were written about it. So, you know, that's kind of stuff. If you're going to do a book on someone like that, like, you've you got to be prepared to really 
kind of uh, put your boots on and, and wade into the mud for mm. things like that. Oh, oh, absolutely. And, you know, once the transfer of ownership uh, of the Detroit Territory was uh, completed, um, you know, Ed as a promoter was met with certain skepticism, uh, you know, early on from some of the older guard. Uh, how do you think he was able to finally kind of get them to, to take notice and, and make them realize that what he was doing at that time and what he was working on and his vision was something that was going to be a success? initially well because at the end of the day really when it comes down to it the, the purpose of the business right it, it just like it is today is to make money so once you prove you can do that everything else is kind of secondary and, you know and, and even if that sounds cynical that is the way these guys operated so even though you had people in the business like I, I mentioned in the book like people like Sam Muchnick and Luthez and, and Vern Gagne who they prized pure wrestling and scientific wrestling and they looked down sometimes on the gimmick performers and people that were not really wrestlers right even though the sheik could wrestle when he needed to they they would look down on people like that but you can't deny that he's going to make you a lot of money so so you know you can you can hold your nose and you can book him mm-hmm. uh, he's one of the hottest attractions in the country because and that was really how he built his bridges by saying you know, I can make a lot of money for you. Uh, people will pay to see me. I'm one of the hottest stars in the country. So once he once he was able to prove that in certain territories, it opened doors. But see, the problem with that is, though, once your um, value dissipates in that way where you're mm-hmm. not a draw anymore and it's not working anymore and the act is old and stale, they will kick you out the door faster than you know, it'll, it'll make your head spin because they don't have a use for you anymore because their relationship with you was strictly based on your drawing ability. They didn't like you. They didn't care for the way you did business. They didn't care for the way you worked. They were working with you because you were making everybody money. And if you're not anymore, then see you later. You know, don't let the doorknob hit you on the way out. And, and that was unfortunately part of his downfall. He, he just got abandoned by everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time, too, he was not only uh, it wasn't just a guaranteed lock that he would have all this uh, success because he was also competing with guys like, you know, he had Dick the Bruiser in the WWA who also worked with with other uh, wrestlers in competition, too. So it was a little bit of an uphill thing. It wasn't anything that was totally guaranteed. So you got to give him a little bit of that, that that credit for for overcoming and coexisting with, with, with Dick the Bruiser and, and some of the towns and some of the agreements that they made upon. If it so happened, they were booked near and around each other yeah he you know he had to scratch and fight uh, for everything there were several attempts to to uh, go against him and compete uh, and the dick the bruiser thing was the most serious one it went on for about three years right in the middle of the of, the, of detroit you know where the bruiser had taken part of the territory because barnett was running a very large territory that that included detroit michigan uh, uh, michigan ohio area in southern Ontario, which is what she got, but it also included Indiana and, and other parts like parts of West Virginia and things that Bruiser wound up taking by force, whereas the Sheik kind of bought them out in that part. So from the beginning, there was animosity there because the Sheik is going, well, I, I paid for this. I did this the right way. And Bruiser just kind of muscled in and Bruiser was trying to do the same thing with the northern part of the territory that Sheik had. And, um, and and came in and tried to do that. So there's no question about it. I mean, the Sheik had to fight definitely for what he did and, and 
and stake his claim, and he proved his drawing power. He was one of the hottest draws in the country. And Detroit, or even in Canada, too, not just yeah. the United States, Detroit, his area was um, at one time the hottest territory in the, in, the, in the country, really. I would argue late 60s, early 70s, there was a period there where there were very few, uh, maybe, the, you know, maybe the WWF, and even they were struggling at certain points. They lost their TV in 1969 and things like that. I mean, that Detroit territory was on fire. There was a thing recently in the Observer, where if you know, if you don't believe me, where where Meltzer kind of tracked year by year, going back to you know over a hundred years, and every year who was the number one box office attraction of that year, and you can look and see in that period there, late sixties, early seventies, the Sheik is listed for several of those years, more than one as the top attraction in the wrestling business. So, and that, that was a fact. Yeah. Just of major importance to have that huge and maintain that huge uh, Canadian base there with, with Montreal and Toronto and having that TV leak into, you know, like Windsor and Toronto areas as well, because from that became a great exchange of talent too, with, with guys working across into the States and, and, and getting some more exposure uh, in, the, in, in working in Detroit for the Sheik. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people wound up thinking that Detroit and Toronto were almost like it was kind of the same territory <laughs> because you'd see the Sheik in both, you'd see the U.S. title in both. They even had the same announcer, Lord Athol Layton, was working for both. But they were sort of like sister promotions for a while, where you had um, big time wrestling, which ran with Detroit was their capital, but they were also in Ohio and, and, and other small towns in Michigan and even other states around, and then you had Maple Leaf Wrestling, which was Frank Tunney's organization, and they ran the Maple Leaf Gardens and some of the smaller um, Ontario towns that Sheik wasn't running. And then you also had, there was a third territory, there was a period when it was really hot there, where you had these three territories where wrestlers were moving among them. The other one was Pedro Martinez's territory in upstate New York, and it kind of dribbled down into parts of Pennsylvania, which bordered directly on Sheik's domain. That was the it was they called it the National Wrestling Federation, but it was Pedro Martinez and Johnny Powers, and it became like this triumvirate of uh, of wrestling territories for a while there. That was that was doing really well, and 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 then they had talent exchanges going. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to just talk about two uh, really big and important people in, in the career and life of, of Ed Farhat and a guy that, uh, well, it, this was a rivalry. This was a matchup that uh, went decades and was uh, uh, on many of the top, middle, and any part of the card. And a guy who uh, himself made history as uh, one of the first black wrestlers to cross that, that pro wrestling color uh, barrier. I want to talk about what or talk to you and have you tell me just how significant Bobo Brazil, a.k.a. Houston Harris, was in the life of Ed Farhat and the Sheik, and just how those great matches not only were fantastic to see in the ring, but just how important they were in regards to, you know, civil rights and, and, and breaking even further, continuing to break the color barrier, you know, explode it, break it wide open. Yeah, and, and I talked about it in the book how uh, that, that was a major instrument in Sheik's success because you can't be a great villain unless you have a great hero. You know, in the book, I compared it to things like Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty and Batman and the Joker. And, you know, you need to, you need to balance out um, who your arch rival is, and he found somebody perfect in Bobo Brazil. And he deserves credit, the Sheik does, for recognizing that because – 
you know, there was a lot of racism in the business back then. This is no newsflash for anybody. There was a lot of color barriers that were not broken. A lot of the promoters Sheik himself in the book described as being kind of racist. And he was not one of those people. You know, he grew up in a mixed race neighborhood in Detroit. He himself, you know, being of Arabic descent was not strictly white in the sense of the other, you know, being of European descent. So he was kind of straddling the line of understanding that, oh, this is a, this is like a good old boys club of these white guys that kind of rule everything. And he wanted to kind of break that down because he saw how the black wrestlers were being treated second class. He even saw it going back to when he was in World War II, I mentioned in the book, how the black soldiers were treated like, you know, second class compared to the white soldiers. So he never, he always had, for, for whatever flaws you could say about him and his booking and everything, he always recognized the importance of having a more kind of evenly balanced roster. He's also operating in a city, Detroit, with a very large African-American population. So he was smart enough to understand that you have to give those people a hero. And you mentioned, too, how it, what, how it was involved in race relations, because one of the things I found in the book in researching it, which I wasn't aware of, again, another thing was, you know, you've got this war raging between Bobo Brazil and the Sheik. And at one point, specifically the summer of 1967, I believe it was, which was the summer of all these riots all over the country, race riots, Detroit almost burned to the ground, just crazy riots happening in that city, which to one degree or another, the city really kind of never recovered from, even to this day. And there's a decision made by the Sheik, who has been United States champion for years, to go, okay, I'm going to drop the title to Bobo Brazil. And I know, you know, maybe it sounds silly, maybe it sounds trivial. It's, well, what, you know, this is just pro wrestling. You know, it's not important, but it was important for thousands of people in that city. And they got to see finally this African-American hero vanquish the Sheik who they hated finally, right, right in the midst of all this and become the champion. And it's one of those examples where, yes, pro wrestling can be a catharsis. It can be a release. It's like the Stone Cold Vince McMahon stuff. You know, it, it can give people a release. And the Sheik was able to recognize that. Um, at that time. Mm -hmm. 100%. And I, another person I said I was going to mention was uh, the, ga the gal who was uh, by his side, worked with him in the ring, was behind the scenes, you know, bared his children. I want to talk about, you know, his ride or die because Joyce has, definitely deserves uh, a good bit of ink, a good bit of uh, soundbite time for, for her contribution uh, as being, you know, the mother and the, hus uh, the wife of, of, of Ed and being a player in his promotion. Right, and she started out as his valet, yep. um, the Princess Salima. This is before he even had Ernie Roth as his manager. And they had kind of a, an on-air relationship similar to something like Randy Savage and Elizabeth, where he's kind of mistreating her and the crowd is, you know, it's getting heat from the crowd. But then, of course, later on, she really became the power behind big-time wrestling in a lot of ways. She was writing the checks. She was the one that was keeping tabs on everything, especially when the, the Sheik was traveling the country even though she did go with him a lot of the time. She was the nuts and bolts of the organization. People kept telling me that over and over again. Like, she was the power behind the throne, for sure. And what I wanted to do, uh, this is another reason why I wanted to be honest about some of the Sheik's shortcomings and some of the, the flaws and bad decisions that he made, because I, I honestly felt that 
that Joyce deserved that. She deserved that depiction because she did have to endure that. She was a faithful wife. She did support him on this crazy dream that he had. I mean, they were 18 years old when they got married. You know, she was 19 when she had their first kid. You know, she got pulled into this world. You can just imagine it and, and, and went along with it and was all about it. And then unfortunately had to deal with this other side of him and, ha- and was betrayed by him and their marriage almost collapsed. And I, you know, I'd be doing her a disservice if I said that everything was just sunshine and rainbows sure. between them. It wasn't. They had dark times. But, it's a, but in a way, to me, it was a happy ending because they reconciled. They put those troubles behind them. And in the end, you know, in Sheik's final days and final years, they were together. They were in love. I have testimonials from people who were there. Mm-hmm. You know, they had put the past behind them. And they ended as together as husband and wife on a high note. So that's what I mean when I say I want to tell the story and it can't all just be positives. You know, it's the real story. Talk about the ultimate closure for those two. And oh, before I, uh, yeah. I hand over to Mike, I, I, we have to mention this movie, man. We have to talk a little bit about I like to hurt people because, God, <laughs> I, I mean, I, hell, if I had time, I'd go watch it this afternoon if I wasn't uh, uh, going out and about. Uh, this was just, uh, I, I mean, the fact it got delayed in its release because you're watching clips. It, the, initially came up, well, it was the mid-80s this thing came out. And this, the clips, 85, 85 yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, these clips are just amazing. And it's just, it, it was an interesting movie. I mean, granted, it's not going to be on the AFI's, uh, uh, you know, 100 top 100 list of uh, movies no, of all I time. I don't think it's on the. I don't think it's on the Criterion Channel. If you're looking no. for it there, I think no. it's on the SOL <laughs> network. Basically, uh, it, <laughs> yeah. was, it was initially. Uh, I, but I found out and just read a little bit about the backstory because I'd never. I mean, I've seen it and I just love it just for the fact it's just you know a nice time capsule piece of some of those clips are just oh. Um, tremendous uh, it was originally going to be uh, it was supposed to be and they were going to get put together a movie uh, it was supposed to be like a horror movie i mean that's almost like uh predating uh santo gold here but talk a little bit about what you got uh what you picked up as far as knowledge of this movie i mean you have to this is one of those that you just gotta love it's a cult thing it's a must see yes for people that haven't seen it it's widely available even online i like to hurt people and i have to say it it, it was the way that i first fell in love with the Sheik and Detroit big time wrestling was through that movie because yeah, I wasn't around then. I wasn't even living in that area. You know, it, it, this stuff's before my time. So I had to discover it. And that movie, which for kids that grew up in the eighties, you, you might remember, I mean, especially if you were a wrestling fan, it was, you know, in, it seemed like it was in every video store in the wrestling section. Oh, yeah. And it was weird because you'd see all these like WWF Coliseum videotapes and things and stars you recognized, you know, and then there would be, this movie with this incredible title <laughs> and I checked it out and yeah, it's, it's this time capsule of territorial wrestling. It's some of the highest quality footage. It wound up being of wrestling matches from the 1970s. It's incredible. It's an incredible thing. And it almost didn't happen. They shot the footage in 77 and 78. Like you said, it was originally conceived as a horror film because the people who made it, Donald Jackson and Brian Greenberg, they were B-movie people. Their experience was in horror movies and kind of low-budget stuff, and that was the approach they were going to take, where the Sheik was going to be this wrestler who was possessed by the devil, and you know they were going to intersperse uh, footage of matches and things, of real matches, 
And uh, they quickly kind of discovered that they were never going to be able to control these guys and like make a narrative out of it. It was going to be a mess. Like to, they just didn't have the resources to keep these wrestlers under control. So the decision was, well, we'll, we'll just kind of be in their world and we'll shoot what they do and we'll make something out of that instead of trying to tell them what to do. Um, even though there are a few very cool vignettes and hilarious little little pieces in there that are obviously scripted, but they abandoned this idea of making like a coherent plot. It was supposed to be called Ringside in Hell. Um, that was going to be the title. And and you know if you if you check out the movie, there's even there's one scene in there which hints as to that original purpose, where the sheik is mentioned as people are speculating if he's possessed by the devil. And I think there's even a scene where like he grabs this guy and drags him into like a, like a custodian's closet or a bathroom or something. And you never see the guy again. And so it's like a glimpse of what their original idea was behind the movie. But you know, that's not the finished product. The, the, the whole reason they were able to put it out in 85 when they thought it was dead Big time wrestling was dead by that point, but because of the wrestling craze with WWF and WrestleMania and Hulk Hogan and rock and wrestling, uh, Donald Jackson revisited it and said, Hey, maybe we can, maybe we have something here. We can like finish this, put it out, try to capitalize on this wrestling craze. And even though it, you know, it wasn't a huge success, it really wasn't, but it became this B movie, like cult classic that even even beyond wrestling fans, there are people that are just fans of weird, weird movies that love this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there was like, in that little window of time, too, there was wrestling, pro wrestling-related movies that were coming out, and, you know, there was Grunt, and, of course, Body Slam, and there was a couple, it was a, the movie that, uh, that, I cannot remember, was it Tough Guys with, with Sergeant Slaughter and Ruth Buzzy? So it was all kind of these weird, quirky little yeah. pro wrestling movies wrestling. At, at that time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, this one definitely, can, I, I think, is a lot better than some of those other ones, uh, I mean, but again, it's not exactly setting the bar too high but like you said it was the the nostalgia of those just great great clips and no they couldn't stop the chic man they couldn't right and and if you check it out i once did uh, a presentation for a friend of mine we did kind of like this multimedia uh, comedy show we used to do it every year and it was wrestling themed and one year um i my focus was i like to hurt people and i picked out some gems from it so i mean like there's there's two things that stand out for me in that movie. One is there is an incredible, well, there's three. There's an incredible Dusty Rhodes promo, which is like vintage, vintage, vintage Dusty Rhodes in his prime in the 70s. And you don't get to see a lot of that, especially at the level of quality that this is recorded. It's beautiful. And um, there's this great scene, which they staged, obviously, where there's these two kids that are meeting Andre the Giant, you know, out in, in public, like, he, you know, one of the guys is trying to tell the other guy, Andre the Giant's my friend. You know, you got to believe me. And Andre shows up in this Jeep that he could barely fit in, you know, and he climbs out of it with this giant afro. And I think it was the first time that Andre the Giant had ever been, you know, in kind of a scripted scene before. And you can tell that his English, you know, I mean, his English was never superb, but sure. like even then, like he barely speaks because his English wasn't that great. And he had one line which is, are you talking to Andre? You know, that's his one line. <laughs> and they had to walk him through that line, like, phonetically, because even that he was, he was having trouble with. So there's that, and there's my favorite, 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 which is there's this shouting match argument 
between the Sheik's two managers, which is Abdullah Farouk, Ernie Roth, a.k.a. the Grand Wizard, and Eddie the Brain Creechman. And this thing is like, I mean, if I could take this segment, I would put it in the, in the Museum of Modern Art. Like, I'm, I'm not even joking. In the Museum of the, of the Moving Image. You know, it, it's like, it's just, it's weird, crazy performance art. There's no other way to describe it. And I played it for this crowd of people who were not wrestling fans. And they ate it up. They adored it. They couldn't, they almost made me roll it back and play it again. And it's one of those things you, you have to see it to believe it. Our guest has been Brian R. Solomon, the author of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And our time is uh, running out here this week. I want to thank you so much for uh, being back on the program. I had you on uh, for the FAQ uh, book a few years ago, and it's always good to have you you come back, and you're definitely, uh, the door is open for any future appearances. But I want to have you promote, again, your podcast, which is on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, uh, the great Brian Last, uh, a great network of programs of which your program has joined and is a stellar, stellar show. Tell them a little bit about that. Tell them where people can contact you, and we'll wrap this baby up with a big old bow. Sure. Thank you very much. Well, the podcast is called Shut Up and Wrestle, and it is part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network, which people may most know from the Jim Cornette podcast. Mm-hmm. But um, you can find it. The website is suawpod.com, but you can get it on Spotify and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. Wherever you get podcasts, just look up Shut Up and Wrestle and my name, Brian R. Solomon. You'll find it. Um, we're up to episode eight now. It's been great. It's old. If you love old school wrestling talk, it's the podcast for you. I mean, it's the podcast that I would love to listen to if I was a fan. So I felt like I had to make it, you know. And if people want to find me on social media, um, Twitter and Instagram, I'm Brian R. Solomon. And on Facebook, actually, you mentioned Pro Wrestling FAQ. That is the Facebook page where I put a lot of my wrestling content. So if you search Pro Wrestling FAQ on Facebook and on all those platforms, you'll find links to my author uh, webpage, which is, you know, which has which updates everything that I'm working on and everything I have on the horizon. So those are the ways to find me. All right. Uh, we're going to wrap things up. This has been Wrestling Memories for our guest, Brian R. Solomon and the Grizzle Vet Mike McCurdy. I'm Glenn Broggett. Take care, everyone.